0: stay hungry, stay foolish. What does the future hold for society? Today's guest is one of the giants of contemporary thought. In the second curve he builds on a life's work to glimpse into the future and see what challenges and opportunities lie ahead. He looks at the current trends in capitalism, and asks whether it is a sustainable system. He explores the dangers of a society built on credit. He challenges the myth that remorseless growth is essential. He even asks us whether we should rethink our roles in life as students, parents, workers and voters, and what the aims of an ideal society of the future should be provocative and thoughtful as ever. He sets out the questions we all need to ask ourselves. And points us in the direction of some of the answers. It is a great pleasure to welcome author of many many titles, but the focus of today's show, the Second Curve, Charles Handy. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Wonderful to meet you.
0: It's fantastic to have you on the show, Charles. It's a real real honour, and thank you for welcoming here in your home in London. I wanted to start first with the idea of the Second Curve. I loved the intro to the book where you learned that history and tradition can be a prison as well as a thing to be treasured a looming disaster is often needed to allow change from the status quo
1: well the status quo is your comfort zone i'm a great believer in boredom because if you get bored you really have to do something about it as i tell my children or you say um you're not allowed to be bored in my home you've got to get out of it you've got to go do something so being bored is a great incentive if you're in charge of anything, if people get into their comfort zone, you must kick them out in some way, which is why I value people like you coming and asking me uncomfortable questions. i got to think up new answers. I can't just give them the same answer all the time. Because <laughs> questions are different. I remember sitting at the Synod of the Church of England, for all sakes, and uh, they were debating the possible ordination of women, which was certainly uncomfortable for most of the men there. And eventually, one of the men stood up and and said, Mr. Chairman, he said, addressing the Archbishop, why cannot the status quo be the way forward, as it often is in our great country? And it seems such a silly thing to say, but he really meant it. The status quo can never be the way forward. It's only the way to stand still. And standing still doesn't get you anywhere. So you've got to, in other words, move. But saying to people, change, doesn't seem to help people. So change is a frightening word to most people. So I came up with the idea of the second curve as a means of saying, move on, but move differently. And that seems to resonate with people more because they all feel that they can do things differently if they were allowed to. So that's my message. Think different, don't think
0: more. And this is one of the big problems with success, isn't it, that we get to this point of success and we have a difficulty of seeing a different way of being. And the story of Davies Bar really resonated with me, but also resonates with people as a way of thinking about the second curve.
1: Well, I find that stories, particularly if they're sort of visual stories, stick in people's minds. They don't always remember the point, but they do remember the story. (laughs) And yes, Davies Bar, I, I run into trouble. People actually think there is a Davies Bar. And they try to get directions, to it. <laughs> and I say, "No, it's a mythical bar, but uh you know it's a metaphorical bar, but I do. I meet people a lot a lot there who say, "Oh my goodness, if only I had done this or that, but I can't you can't go back from Davie's Bar once you're in Davies Bar, you're stuck. you can only move forward, and there is no forward, so you have to have just a drink and wish you'd taken that turn earlier."
0: And could you tell us the story about what actually happened to you at that time in Ireland? You were in Wicklow, I believe.
1: I was in the Wicklow Mountains. I was going to a Voker and I'd just forgotten the way. I hadn't been that way for some time. So I saw him in by the road. So I, I stopped and I said to him, is this the road to a voker? And he said, indeed, it is. His. He said, you just go up this long hill. And when you get to the top, look down and you'll see down above the, the hill, you'll see a little stream and a bridge over it, on the other side of the bridge you'll see Davies Bar. You can't miss it because it's painted a bright red. Have you got that?" So I said, yeah, Long Hill, look down, bridge, Davies Bar. He said, right. Well, three kilometers before you get there, turn right, and that's your road. So I thought, oh, okay. He told me I can remember that, so I got up. And then I thought, a bit odd. I saw Davies Bar, so I thought, well, Three kilometers before I get there. Well, I better go down there and come back and count three kilometers. So I did that, and I saw the road. But blow me down. The road was before I'd reached the top of the hill, the other side. The wretched man hadn't told me that the road would go before I could even see Davies Bar. And that was the problem, because once you get to Davies Bar in real life, you can't turn around and go backtracking. Life isn't made like that. So, you're trapped. Somehow or other, you've got to remember that your railroad leaves before you see Davis Bar. If you, wait, if you see Davies Bar, it's too late. And too many organizations that I know, and too many individuals that I know, they're on a track and they can't get off it. Because the trouble is, they have to start preparing to get on this new road before they see Davies, before they reach the top of that long hill that's life. But at that point, when they should be changing, all the messages are, they're doing very well, thank you very much, so keep on going. You know, where you are is the right way, keep in your comfort zone, the status quo is okay. But of course it isn't, and they discover that too late when they're sitting in Davis Bar, having a last drink before the end. Because most organizations, most individuals, don't change until they really have to, when they actually see the end is nigh and they They will die or fail if they don't change. But it's too late. You've got to change before you have to leave the party where the going is still good. The only way to do that is to keep itchy, itchy, thinking of new things all the time, so that when you get the chance, you can move. I mean, I quote Steve Jobs of Apple as a wonderful example of a person who's always thinking about the next curve. I gather he was not a very pleasant personality and difficult to work with. But goodness me, he must have been upsetting to his uh, fellow board members. <laughs> Can you imagine? Many started off, the Macintosh computer was what they sold, and it was doing very well. And he walks in one morning and he says, gentlemen, I know we're doing very well, but we're going to use our profits to invest in a new system. We're going into music. We're going into an iPod. And then when that was going quite well, and he came in and he said, new idea today, we're going into the telephone business. And they said, well, what are you talking about? We're in computers. He said, no, 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 we're in computers, but now we're in telephones. That's the future. And now he's doing very well, and he comes up and he said, no, it's not an iPod, it's an iPad. And everybody says, so what's that? He said, well, it's like a computer, but it's not a computer you carry it around with you in your pocket." but it's not a telephone, so what are people going to use it for?" And he said, believe me, by the time we've got it going in about three years' time, everybody will want an iPad. They'll be walking around with them. They'll use it as a notepad, and they'll use it as a mini-computer, but they can't use it as a phone, so they still have one of our phones. And, of course, he was always right, amazingly, but it was his quizzical habit of always thinking one step ahead, I was a present that must have made him very, very irritating. And in my own life, I was a very uncomfortable husband, I think, because I was always itching to do something else. I was never comfortable just doing the same thing every week, or living in the same house. And I was always thinking about new possibilities, dreaming you might say, until eventually it actually happened. And I resigned by mistake from my job. (laughs) (laughs) which you would think nobody else does, but it happened to me. Uh, I was working in a funny job running a little conference center in Windsor Castle, and my boss was the dean of St. George's Chapel. Anyway, he came to me one day and he said, your contract's got a year to run, but we ought to be thinking about looking for a successor. And he said, we've got a general who's very interested, but he can't wait for another year. So I said, being a kind chap, I said, well... You know, if you and the other trustees want me to go a little early, by which I meant a month or so, I'm sure we could could think about it. On that evening, one of the other trustees rang me up and they said, Charles, I'm terribly sorry to hear you're leaving. I said, I'm not leaving. He said, oh, yes, you are. The dean's just come in. He said, you've resigned and we've discussed the date for your leaving party. (laughs) And obviously the dean and my boss had taken me seriously and, and thought I was actually going to leave. So I had to go back and tell my wife that I'm sorry, I've resigned, apparently. (laughs) And the children had to change school. We had to leave the house and everything. So she was not very best pleased. And she said, well, now you've got to live up to your own bloody books. You've got to start your second curve. She said, you always said you wanted to be a writer, so off you go. And it was very tough because changing out of your comfort zone to do something you haven't done before is uncomfortable, like you don't have enough money. All your old contacts are no use anymore. But anyway, you struggle and it takes time, but eventually you take off, like any new business. And I'm very glad in the end that I did, but it wasn't very pleasant for a bit. And my wife would say, I hope you're not going to have any more new ideas or more resignations by mistake. So it's helpful to talk to your friends if you're going to do upset their life.
0: <laughs> and this reminds me of something you talk about, which is the contract with ourselves. It's one of the essays from the second curve. And you once described your life to an Indian guru and you told him about all your adventures, etc. And he said to you, you seem to be very busy going nowhere in particular. And it seems incredible to hear this now after how much you've achieved in your life. But that's the case for so many people. I mentioned to you, I lecture in Trinity College, Charles, and I tell the students not to make decisions based on the opinions of others, but make them from yourselves. And you mentioned, for example, how Jean Paul Sartre, the French philosopher said, the best gift a parent can do for a child is die young. What's your advice for parents out there for people who are encouraging their children, on one hand, and then also on the flip side, for students, people you've lectured to, for example, in business schools, there's two sides to the coin here the parent side and then the student side about how to take charge of their own lives. I
1: also tell my students that luck is a big part, and actually knowing when to chance your luck is really quite important. I say the thing is, you know, in a funny thing in life, apples fall into your lap, and you shouldn't just take no notice. You should, if they look juicy, eat them, you know? But the problem is uh, you can't tell when the apples are going to fall into your life. It helps a lot if you go stand in an orchard. If you want to go into the acting business, go to cultivate your acting friends, go to as many theatre dues as you can, stand in the theatre orchard world, and then apples will fall into your life. If you want to go into, into technology, haunt technology conferences. And then one day somebody will say to you, oh, just the kind of guy I need. And that's the apple. And bite it. You've chanced your luck because you've gotten a student in the orchard. And for parents, I would strongly advise them to get out of the way. Don't die necessarily, but don't try to influence your children too much. It's their lives and they have to make their own deals with life. And remember, everything that you do is a good learning experience. My father was a country parson in Kildare in Ireland. I joined Shell, and my parents didn't try to persuade me not to, though they clearly disapproved. They wanted me to be a country parson and perhaps promote myself to be a bishop one day. My son, the bishop, you know, that's what they wanted. But I decided by then that I wasn't going to be ever going to church again, or I was not going to be poor again. So I thought an oil industry career would be very nice. Um, Anyway, I was posted by Shell, but my first job was going to be in Singapore. And my parents came to see me off at the airport. My mother said as I got out of the car, she said, never mind, dear, it'll all be great material for your books. (laughs) Books, mother, I said. I'm going to be an oil executive. What are you talking about books for? She said, I see, dear, which mothers do when they mean they don't see. She knew something that I didn't, obviously, that I was really going to be a writer. And she was absolutely right because the stories I picked up tried to run bits of shell were incredibly useful when I became a teacher in the London Business School because they love your teachers to tell stories of their own lives, particularly if they're disasters, as most of mine were. And so basically I used to say to them, you've got to make your own mistakes. And my wife would take, telling me, every problem you meet, there is behind it a hidden opportunity to do something different. So in every experience is useful. It's material for your next book. I had a, a stroke a year ago which knocked me out of action, but I realized as I lay there, with nothing moving and no muscles left. That it was going to be great material for my next book. <laughs> so I carefully noted down everything that was happening to me at the moment. And so I'm writing a new book, or The Dead Man Talking, Brilliant, which is basically about being totally dependent on other people, being effectively dead, not independent in any useful way, and uh, needing somebody else to hold on to you while you walk, needing somebody else to dress you, needing somebody else to wash you. I mean, It's really quite difficult and quite humiliating at times, but it's all an interesting experience which I can write about. So my second curve is talking about being out of action, really, which is interesting for somebody who always wanted to be in action. I mean, I was quite an active member of society, and now I'm just a spectator. I'm sitting in the theater watching other people perform, which is very good for me because I have to keep my mouth shut. So that's why it's so nice to be talking like this, because basically I'm a storyteller and a talker.
0: It's funny because in the second curve, you preempted this, you said, and I agree massively with you, that society shuts away their elders, and there's so much wisdom in the elders. That, that experience, that scar tissue has so much to teach the next generation, and they can build upon that wisdom.
1: Yes, well, you hope your, your experiences are relevant, but uh, it's quite good to be asked about your own experiences and what you learned from them. People ask me if I do consultancy. I say, no, I do Socratic counseling. I refuse to go into organizations. I I like to see them through the eyes of of their chief executive or one of their senior managers who come to see me. So it's their organization I'm talking about, and I question them. And I say, what's your organization all about? And they say, it's about making a profit. And I say, why are you making a profit? And they say, to make more profit. And I say, why? And I keep asking why, and they've... Increasingly, find it difficult to answer, and in the end, they come to an answer that actually is beyond selfishness. They say, in order to uh, improve society, or to make my customers happy, or something, something that deals with something other than themselves. Because great organisations have a purpose beyond themselves.
0: Let's talk about that purpose, because you mentioned how the financial downturn was a catalyst for change when many of us and many organizations had to rethink what they stood for. And I'd love to honor your wonderful wife and partner Elizabeth with the three selves, which you and her put forward and which ones we put forward first, which one actually represents who we truly are in your book, the new alchemist. You mentioned this.
1: Well, my wife is a photographer and a very imaginative one. And she loved taking photographs, but she wanted, she was very interested in identity and her, her photographs try to explore people's identities, she makes them try to feel good. But one of the tricks she came up with was very interesting. She said, everybody that I meet, she said, there are at least three different selves there. There's the public self and the private sector and so on. So she'd ask people, she'd go to their home and ask them to stand in their favorite room and then act out visually the different selves. So there would be the mother, There might be, the, um, in her case, the photographer, or there was the the money-earning, the businesswoman, and so on. And what she discovered, she didn't tell people this, but uh, of the three selves that she had, the one that was nearest to the camera, which she chose, was that of a photographer, because that was the one bit of herself that she most loved, most keen on. But actually, the nearer you stood to the camera, the bigger you come in the picture when you get it developed. So in the picture she developed, there she was, very large as a photographer, not quite so large as a cook and the mother the mother hen. And then right at the back, she was there as my agent, the moneymaker, <laughs> tiny little figure. So I say to people, you can see how important I have in her life. <laughs> and... Um, and when she'd deal with this with people, and they would be very surprised. I remember going to one man who was a banker. And uh, he, as a banker, he put himself at the back of the picture. He didn't realize that was where he was going to be. But right at the front, he came in his sort of casual clothes with a pile of books beside him. And it turned out when we talked about it, that basically he wanted to write a novel. He was a he dream, dreamt of being a novelist. And he hated being a banker. And uh, sure enough, within a year, he was a best-selling novelist and uh, had stopped being a banker. So it was a way of helping people to discover what their dream is, really, by by means of photography. uh, But it was great fun uh, getting people to do that. But, I mean, you do. All of you have different persona or masks that you put on, um, depending who you're with. Um, So, most of the time I'm a writer, but some of the time I'm a speaker. And so, sometimes I pretend I'm a guru or something like that, and some of the time I'm just a visitor at an organization, and sometimes I'm just a writer, but it all depends who I'm with. And I can choose, of course, to put on a different mask or a different persona, as they call it in Greek. But people will find you out. I remember a friend of mine. It was he in somewhere. They had a in London. They had a take your daughter to work day to try and persuade young people to go into business. So he took his very bright fifteen-year-old daughter to work with him, and I said to her, "How did it go?" She said, "Well, it was very strange. I was this man who turned out to be not like my father at all." Uh, because he was totally different sitting behind a big desk at an office than the father, the cosy father that she knew at home. And she said, I didn't agree with him, actually. She found quite shattering. But uh, most of us play with our different masks that we put on. I remember going to um, a call centre head office in New Delhi in India. And there it was, it was a call centre that dealt with the complaints and so on, of an American firm. And so all the the people, they were basically mostly young women, would come in in the morning two hours early and they had to sit, change into American clothes and then sit and watch an American soap comedy on the television and speak with an American accent while they watched it so that when their customer spoke to them, The customers thought they were speaking to young Americans. And then they, after their their stint was finished, they changed back into their Indian saris and go off home and be Indian ladies and gentlemen. And I said, I wonder how on earth they managed to live like that. And then I thought, but I'm exactly the same. I go into London Business School where I was, and I'd wear a suit because I was teaching that day. But then I'd come home and put on a sweater and uh, sit by the fire, read a book. And I would be a different person. I'll uh, pretend to be a different person, but of course, underneath, I wasn't really that different, uh, but which was a real me. I had to be very clear about what my real me was, what my core values were, um, and what I thought was good and what I thought was wrong in life. And that's quite important. I'm a great follower of Aristotle. And Aristotle had a list of 12 virtues which were very important. And one of them was what he called courage. And courage, he meant, the courage to stand up for what you believe in no matter what. So you have to work out what you really believe in, and what you can't, uh, what's your sticking point, what people can't budge you on. So what are your core beliefs? What is your sticking point? What can't you be budged by? When my students used to arrive at the London Business School, they had two books in front of them, which were the core books for that first term. One was called The Meaning of Company Accounts because they had to be able to read a balance sheet. And the second was, was a Sophocles' play, Antigone, translated from Greek into English. And they looked at me in amazement and they said, well, I can quite see why we've got the accounting book. What are we doing reading a Greek play? And I said, well, you read it and you'll see. Because the point was, Antigone was told by her uncle, the ruler of her city, Thebes, that she was not allowed to bury her husband who had been killed in in the civil War. And the Greek religion said that if you don't bury your family properly, the furies will pursue you for the rest of your eternal existence in hell. So it was very important for her to bury her husband properly. But her uncle said anybody touching her brother's dead body would be condemned to eternal imprisonment or death. So she had this problem. Was she willing to die in order to let her brother not be pursued in hell by the Furies? And I said, what do you do if your boss tells you to do something that you don't believe is right? Do you believe him because you your boss, or do you believe your conscience? If he tells you to go and promote more cigarettes for sale in East Africa which you think is really bad for them, do you do that? Or if he asks you to bribe some, some officials in the Chinese government because that's the custom of the country, do you do it or do you believe it's wrong and you'll stand up for what you believe in? You'll have Aristotle's courage and let me tell you, that's the point of Sophocles' play. Now, which are you going to be? Or are you going to be the boss and are you going to ask people to do something that they believe is wrong or are you going to listen to them? So they went away quite thoughtful. And uh, those are the key issues it seems to be. First what well, is who's the person behind these masks you put on? You may say, you know, you're, you're doing frightfully well, you've been promoted and you're earning X million pounds or euros a year. I'm not impressed. It's a mask. Who are you?
0: And this becomes really important from a business dynamic perspective as well. And I love how you, in the essay, The Dilemma for Growth, put this, Charles. Growth should always be the means to a greater purpose rather than an end in itself. And unfortunately, that end of shareholder value has become the purpose for businesses, but that is not the way it should be, and it's not the way it was meant to be to begin with.
1: No, it wasn't. Um, that was why I keep asking people, why? You know, why do you make money? And until they eventually they come with a purpose beyond themselves. I mean, a business is a community with a purpose. And um, basically, uh, no business succeeds unless they make a profit. That is a necessary condition of being a business. You can't live without making a profit. Just a human being can't live without making some money. But if you, if you say that the necessary condition is the purpose, then you're making what philosophers call a category mistake. And a category mistake means you got, you're screwed up. You're taking a means and making it into a purpose. And so um, you eat in order to live. But if you turn the eating into a purpose, you become very fat and you're known as very greedy. And you will get ill and you will die. Because you overeat. And so you have made a category mistake, which is fatal. I used, when I was in hospital, I used to get very angry with them because they were trying to get more efficient and trying to make sure the patients did what they were told and kept to the meal times and didn't get out of bed without permission, et cetera, et cetera. And I found it very frightening. And I said to the chief nursing staff, I said, You've got it wrong. No organization can survive unless they are efficient. But if you turn that into a purpose, you're going to screw everything up. You've forgotten why you're there for. You're there for to make me better. And in order to make me better, you have to be efficient. But that's not the thing that you measure. What you measure of me getting better. I mean, schools make a great mistake. Schools have to school their children. They have to pass exams in order to get to the next layer of education. And that's a necessary condition, keeps the parents happy. But if you make it to the main purpose of the school, you forget what you're really there for, which is to make them independent human beings with values and knowing what they believe in and what their core sticking points are. So please make sure that you don't make a category error. Profit is necessary, but not enough. You've got to go beyond that and have a purpose. For instance, I think schools should be measured after about 20 years by what our children are doing in life if we could find a proper way of making sure that we could measure happiness, for instance. Well, hopefully they try to turn out children who will not only be successful but also content with their lives, be happy.
0: Yeah, and I loved what you said about education in education, all the problems we are presented with have already been solved. They were closed problems with proven answers yeah. and we're not taught how to learn. We're not how, taught how to critically think, but rather just to retain information.
1: Yes. I mean, teachers treat their children as empty computers and they're filling their memory cards, but actually they don't actually need the teacher to do that. They can go on Google to do that, actually. So they theoretically already know everything the teacher knows and they need to know how to to access it. But they don't know all the questions the teacher doesn't know the answer to. It's still good answering to our mathematics teacher who you should marry, but he hasn't a clue. And he might just say, oh, well, make sure they earn 10,000 euros a month. But that's not going to satisfy you. So he doesn't have the answer to the important questions to life. He doesn't know who you should marry. He doesn't know what job you should do. He doesn't know what house you should be, what country you should live in. He doesn't know what language you should learn. None of these things can your teachers answer for you, even if it's the best school in the world. And he's the best teacher. He, he can just ask, you've got to answer those questions. So get used to answering your own questions. Don't really expect a teacher uh, just because he's got the answers at the back of his textbook. To know more than you do he knows more than you do about his subject he doesn't know more than you do about your subject which is yourself so you know you've got to work it out
0: and one of the things you talked about charles and you grew up in clane in ireland near the jesuit school of Clongos. and the jesuits say it's the first seven years where the mind is formed and you say for about education and about parenting that a lot of the onus lies with the parents. The parents need to take responsibility to help the children and stop blaming the education system. But remember that there's an onus and responsibility on parents as well.
1: Well, they mustn't interfere. I mean, basically, children are born with curiosity. Unfortunately, we lose curiosity as we grow older, because we think there are answers. And we think the teacher has them. So if we listen to what the teacher says, we get on. But actually, what you have is even more valuable. It's curiosity which is the start of creativity, if you are curious for things, you you'll know, you go out and try to find an answer and that's that's wonderful, and the trouble is as you get older, you lose curiosity because you feel naked if you don't know the answer to things, and so you look for authority. I mean, I know when I was started off in my career as an oil executive in Malaya, Malaysia, I was very curious, I couldn't work out. Why they did things in the way they did, and uh, why they didn't, for instance, use big rail wagons to bring the oil up the railway to the middle in the middle of the country, and why they sent it by road, in smaller, in lorries with drums. And I thought, you know, they must be mad. So I wrote a little paper explaining how much money they saved if they sent it in big rail wagons. And my boss looked at me and he said, uh, how long have you been in this company, Handy?" <laughs> and I said uh, uh, a year sir and he said how long do you think this com- this company's been in this country and I said 20 years sir and he said no 75 do you really think that you know more in your six months than this company knows in 75 years and I said no sir sorry sir he said well next time just as somebody who knows well I tell you within seven years they were using rail wagons <laughs> I was right after all but my silly boss wouldn't allow me to prove my curiosity and go out and work something out and try it out. He thought he knew better, and he didn't. And parents are the same. They don't always know better than their children, and uh, their children are, are often very wise. I mean, I asked my children when the British had their referendum about the European Union, I said, what are you going to believe leave or remain? And they both, and they were aged, what, 10 and 6, they both said they wanted to remain. And I said, why? And so the 10-year-old boy said, well, because I might want to go to university in Europe. And and and, and, and so I get, apparently, it's free if I'm a member of the European Union. And the daughter said, because we could have croissant for breakfast. <laughs> and I thought both of them were absolutely right.
0: From the modes uh, of babes.
1: And, uh, but neither of would have occurred to to myself or my wife, uh, and I mean, it was very good for them to work that out. And they're absolutely right. Yes, the Erasmus program is great, and yes, indeed, French food is remarkably more interesting than English food. So I gave them top marks, <laughs> uh, and they they were very pleased to to have got got rewarded by us. They thought, ah. You know, it did that self-confidence a lot of good
0: absolutely and, and one of the things you said there about your time in malay and malaysia the management versus leadership conundrum these two words get confused quite a bit and you dedicate a lot of the book to this and a lot of your work over time has been about the difference between the two i'd love if you share your thoughts on this
1: well i used to find that people loved to manage to be managers but didn't like to be managed and I began to wonder why it was and why, and eventually I discovered that. And I went into intellectual organizations, the ones which basically did intellectual work, like universities or like law firms or consulting firms, even who hired people for their brains, really, and their talents. And they were professionals and hospitals are the same. That basically the word manager applied to people who were in charge of things, things like, say, the catering, or things like the communication system, or things like the technology, or things like the structure of the organization. And you can manage things. And leaders were the people who were in charge of people. So you had The leader of teams and they had the leader of uh, projects, not the manager of teams. You had the leader of teams. And so I came to the conclusion that, uh, yes, you should only use the word manage when you're dealing with things or systems and lead when you're dealing with people. Because the trouble is that people think you can manage people. And if you call people human resources, it sounds as if they are things. So you think you could boss them around and tell them to do this and that. Whereas a leader, they, they don't have to follow you unless you can persuade them and excite them and give them a common purpose. So leadership is basically an art, which not everybody has. A manager is a technique and a, a skill. But don't try applying managing and treat people like objects, which is what they wanted to do to me in the hospital. They would find it much easier if I was a robot curled up in bed in a cylinder and programmed to get up at 6 in the morning, but not later and not before, and to go to the loo at certain hours of the day. And uh, they found it very annoying when I was a human being with a will of my own that they had to give me an explanation as to why I had to not not wake up too early and so on. And they should try and persuade me and excite me and get me to agree with them, which is what leaders have to do because we have the choice to follow them or not. And uh, I remember once uh, celebrating the 50th birthday of a friend of mine, and he'd ask all his friends to go with them, meet at the place, and then go on a walk, and we'd end up at a pub by a river, which would be very nice.
0: Not Davies Bar, of course. <laughs>
1: not Davies Bar, another bar. <laughs> so we set off, and of course none of us really knew where to go, but eventually one chap who just retired as governor of Hong Kong and therefore you know was used to sort of commanding things, and he said, I know the way, follow me. So he trudged off, you know, in a brisk face being a sort of military man. <laughs> and, uh, and when he'd gone for about 10 minutes, he looked around and none of us had moved. <laughs> he hadn't persuaded us that we should follow him. He thought he was a manager and that we would automatically follow him, otherwise we would be disobedient. So please, if you're a leader, you are not a manager. You've got to persuade people, you've got to excite them. You've got to understand that they don't really understand why why they should follow you. Whereas if you're a manager, well, you know, if it's a lot of lorries you're managing, you can actually program, them. or if they're computers, you can put programs into them so that they will do exactly what you want. But if you try to treat humans' beings like that, you may be disappointed. They may not be following you. So there is a difference. So please. Be a leader not a manager
0: but management is important and you do emphasize this in that your beautiful concept your analogy of the shamrock organization where the stock itself is management and it's ultra important
1: well the shamrock organization is one of my little verbal inventions i like having visual symbols because people remember visual things and you should remember that the only slides i ever showed in my talks are visual slides not PowerPoints, no words, only images (laughs) on the shamrock has, as you well know, three leaves. And I say the modern organization has three leaves. The first leaf is uh, the core group who are absolutely vital to the organization. They hold all the core skills that the organization needs and the leaders there and some of the managers. The second leaf is the contractors. Every organization has a group of people who are outside the organization but provide vital services for it, usually cheaper than the organization can provide itself. But they have to be part of the organization. They must be not regarded as totally separate. And then they're all held together by the stalk, which is the sort of communication system but also the management system which knows what each path is doing, so that they are linked by an information system, which in turn is managed. But of course, it has to be led. You have to persuade people that they are all part of one whole, because if they don't all belong to that stem, then they're not a shamrock. they're just a bunch of leaves, which is not much use. And so the great trick, if you're a leader, is to, is to help decide who goes into what leaf and how big the core should be and to find a way of linking the people who are outside the organization with the people who are inside it so they all belong to the same shamrock and so one of the things the leading has to do is to design the shamrock perfectly made up of lots of little shamrocks
0: yeah i love that idea of, of a team of teams in a way and one of the things you talk about is a shift from headcount, like you said, which means people are things, and you talk about this idea of the citizen organization.
1: Yes, I mean it's very funny, I think, that uh, we pray to pride ourselves on being great democracies in Ireland and Britain and everywhere really. But it's very funny that the the organizations provide the means for our living we earn the money that we pay. We pay them in taxes that fund our public services. Our organizations are undemocratic. They're really they're like monarchies or tyrannies, with a boss cat who tells everyone what to do. And not democratic at all. So I say, supposing we regarded them as citizen organizations and we aren't employees, we're citizens. Now the point about being a citizen is that you are ultimately the people who own the organization. Only, I say, the point about ownership, we're using the wrong word. Citizenship doesn't mean you own Ireland or you own Britain. It means that you have certain rights because you belong to this community. And I want to talk about the language not of ownership but of rights. And I'm saying that if you are a A shareholder, if you've bought shares in the organization, then you have certain rights as a shareholder. You have the right to elect the the leaders of the organization. You have the right to earn a dividend from the profits of the organization. But I'm saying that if you are a citizen, an employee, uh, you also have some rights. And one of those rights, I think, is to have a vote just like the shareholders of a road. You should have the right to vote for the uh, directors of the company. You should have a right to a share of the dividends, not because you are a part owner of the organization, but because you are a citizen. And people get refused. They talk about cooperatives in which people are co-owners. But I think that's a mistake. They're not their citizens. And as a citizen, you have a vote for certain purposes, and you have a right to earn a dividend. But so do the financiers of the organisation. And to call them owners is wrong. They don't own the organisation, they only own shares. But as shareholders, they have certain rights. So I want to change the language from language of shareholders and owners and employees to the language of citizens and financiers, who each have different rights. And in my organization, the employees are citizens, and as citizens, they have a right to a dividend, which is a form of profit sharing, and they have a right to vote for the directors of the company, and they have a right, if the company wants to sell itself, they have a right to vote for that, as citizens, not as employees. By using different terminology and different metaphors, I try to change the focus away from money to actually rights and to me, a company is a group of companions who have a common purpose and they all have different rights according to their contracts. And an employee is a contractor as a citizen and a financier is a contractor as a shareholder. But they're not the same. And trying to send citizens into shareholders doesn't work because they start thinking only in terms of money. And it's not about that. It's also about the conditions of work and so on.
0: I love that concept, Charles. And you mentioned earlier on about the hospital and their drive for efficiency. And you talk about this. There's a big difference between efficiency and effectiveness. And I love how you put this efficiency starts from the input while effectiveness works back from the end result, which also highlights how leaders need to sell that vision and be great storytellers within the organization in order to sell the end result. But efficiency is often the scourge of the second curve.
1: It's so easy to improve efficiency, you know. Get rid of 100 people, tighten up the target, reorganize. It's very easy to do, but actually it makes no difference to the end product, really. it's As I said before, it is the, the necessary condition to be efficient. But what really you need to do is look at the end product, which is called effectiveness. No good being efficient if you're not effective. It's the two different concepts. Efficiency is about how the resources you put into them and how how you manage those things. And effectiveness is about the outcome, and you work backwards to make things more effective. And efficiency is part of that, of course, but it's not all of it. A lot of it is knowing what it is you're trying to achieve. So I kept saying in the hospital, what you're trying to achieve is to make me more independent so I can manage my own life. And they said, no, 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 we're not interested in that. We're trying to keep the cost down. I said, well, it's still good keeping the cost down if you don't cure me, don't help me to get better. And they said, oh, well, I don't know. That's how we're judged. And I said, well, that's terrible. You shouldn't be judged on keeping the cost down. You should be judged on how many people you send out able to walk from the stroke. And I'd be delighted to help you with that. But they didn't like that very much. And because their bosses were judging them on how they kept the costs down. Yeah. And I said, quite often, in order to make your boss work more effective, you have to increase the costs. A little investment here, maybe we'll make it much better results. And uh, that's the right thing to do, even if it pushes up the costs. So please, start with what you're trying to achieve and work backwards to what resources you need to do that. And cutting those resources may often mean you don't achieve the results you want. Efficiency can be the curse of effectiveness. So bear that in mind. Start with what you're trying to achieve, and never forget it, and find a way of measuring that, or at least observing it.
0: And Charles, here you introduce another beautiful image, which is the idea of the donut-shaped projects.
1: One of my favorite images is the donut. I say, I believe in the donut theory of organizations and management or leadership. And people look at me in the basement And I say, Well, don't worry, it's an English donut, it's the jam in the middle. So if it's an American donut, it's got a hole in the middle, and that's no good at all. But I said, Every job that you think of has two overlapping circles. There's a core, the jam. And that's what you have to do or you have failed. You know perfectly well it. what the core covers. It's probably written down for you in the job description, but that's not the whole of your job. You think it isn't, but no, that's what you have to do. And if you don't do it, you've failed and you get sacked. But the job is bigger than that. There's a dough, there's a ring around the doughnut, a space. And that space is there to be filled. And actually because you're actually doing the job, you're the best person to fill it, to use your imagination and your curiosity to fill the donut, and improve on the bit in the middle, the jam in the middle, so that you fill the whole donut. If you try to do it as the boss, then you're what effectively, you're making the whole donut be all jam, and then, as you can imagine, that doesn't work very well. For instance... Um, if you're a train driver, you've got an instruction. You've got to drive it at a certain speed so that you arrive at different stations at the scheduled time. And please make sure that you are on time because otherwise you will disappoint people. And it's no good arriving early, so don't use your initiative to arrive early. That doesn't work. You've got to approve it in the right way. But actually... In the end, if you just confine yourself to doing the jam bit, the core bit, it gets very boring. You want to use your imagination. And if you don't leave space for that in the the job donut, people will get very easily bored. I remember when I came back from Shell to head office, I had a very big sounding job. I was coordinator, regional marketing, Mediterranean region, excluding France which is always a bit difficult. (laughs) And um, I had a long job description of all the things I had to do. And at the bottom it said, authorities, authority to initiate expenditure on your own account up to a maximum of 10 pounds. So that was my, my discretion. That was my space of the donut. Well, that wasn't enough to keep me happy, I have to tell you. So I discovered that they'd forgotten that I had actually something called negative power. I could stop things even though I couldn't start things. So one day, my job was basically to take requests from the operating companies around the companies in Shell around the Mediterranean and forward them to the right department and head office to implement them. And one day, I got a, a message from the Italian company to build a refinery in the Bay of Naples. Well, I've been to the Bay of Naples. It's one of the most beautiful places in Europe, and I tell you honestly, the thought it was one of my sticking points, you don't ruin the environment and to the thought of building a refinery in the Bay of Naples, I thought was really against all my principles which I believed in, so thinking of my message from Sophocles and then Antigone. I was being asked to do something that I thought was fundamentally immoral and wrong. Well, I wasn't in an authority, so I couldn't tell them no. But what I could do was tear it up, which I did, and I threw it in the wastebasket. Of course, it didn't stop it, because they assumed there was something wrong with the Italian postal system, and they sent more copies than they copied <laughs> to lots of other people. So in the end, I'm afraid to say, it got built much to my annoyance. But I stopped it for about three weeks. So I was upholding my principles with my negative power. And the interesting thing about organizations is that no matter how lowly you are, you have negative power even if you don't have positive power. So if you're the bus conductor and it's a wet day, you can stop people getting on. And uh, there's nothing they can do about it. And anybody who's low down in an organization can lock the door and stop you getting in. That's why you must make sure that even the lowest people in the organisation believe in what the organisation is doing, because they have this negative power. I mean, the most important person in many ways is the receptionist in the outer office. They are the first people that the visitor sees when they come in, and they represent, they are an ambassador for the organisation. And if they're rude or standoffish or unhelpful, then that's the opinion that people will immediately form of that organization. So you better make sure that your receptionist believes in what the organization does and is charming and courteous and polite and um, leaves a good impression because if they turn people away, you won't even get to see them and they leave with a very bad impression of your organization because they have negative power. So please, please, Even if they have no positive power or authority in their donut, make sure they're happy with what they're doing and believe in the organization. It's very, very important. And all that I learned, actually, from tearing up a proposal to build an oil refinery in the Bay of Naples. So you never know what you learn if you have curiosity. And it's always useful if you work out why. And please don't use your negative power because you'll have quite a lot of that.
0: Charles, one last story I thought to share is you talk about self empowerment and self responsibility being so important in this world where it's more and more a DIY society. But one of the things you do to remind yourself of your values is you keep a white stone on the desk in your study. And I think it's a lovely lesson and I think it's something that we can all learn from.
1: Well, yes. Um, you just reminded me that on front of my desk, I have a white stone. And why? Well, because one day I was reading the Bible, which I don't do as often as I should, I'm sure. But the book I like most is the Revel- book of Revelations, which is very peculiar. It's a sort of magical book. And you can lose yourself into the images that comes up. And one verse says, to one who, to the one who prevails or, let's say, succeeds, the angel said, I will give a white stone. On which shall be written a name, a name that will be known only to the one who receives it. Now that's a lovely image, and I don't know what was intended by St. John who wrote the the book Revelation, but I interpreted it in my own way, that there is a there is a sort of ideal Charles Handy at me inside me who um embodies all my values and my beliefs and my purposes in life. And so has my name written on it, nobody else's name, just me. And I keep it on my desk just to remind me that I must be true to myself. And hopefully that's my better self, not my worst self. And so I sit there and look at it and I think, uh, well, what do I really believe in and what do I really want to achieve? And how am I going to, in some way, make the world just a little bit better? Not hugely better. I mean, I can't run the country. But I would want to make sure that at least uh, what I do should contribute in some way to making somebody happier, somebody better, even if it's only my wife or my children, or just myself, actually. Let me, for goodness sake, but I dare, I feel that I haven't wasted all the time I've had on this earth, that we live up to my white zone, and what is the best image of me?
0: Well, you've certainly made me a lot happier, and there's a line I pulled as a kind of a closing comment from me, and perhaps it'll tee you up for your closing message for our audience today. The line I pulled that I absolutely love from the second curve is, "We need to challenge orthodoxy. Dream a little, think unreasonably. And they're the impossible if we are going to have any chance of making the future work for us all, not just the favored few. I love that line, Charles. What about you? What about your closing line and your closing message to our audience in this world of rapid change?
1: Always be hungry. Never leave the table satiated. In other words, have unachieved ambitions. Dream a bit. Don't take yourself too seriously. I'm very lucky at the moment. Part of the stroke results in my my right side of my brain, which is the creative bit, has been given free rein. I think. <laughs> um, the, the boring bit of my brain, which makes my body work, is sort of tamed down. But my imagination is leaping away, and I have amazing dreams about 5 o'clock in the morning, which transports me all over the world giving talks to strange people and doing strange things. I find that very exciting because it stimulates my imagination um, and makes me really think. I come up with new ideas and new theories just because I start off with a dream. I mean, there's an organization in China called HIA, which makes kitchen, white goods for kitchens, you know, refrigerators and cookers and so on, dishwashers. It's run by a bit of a tyrant, really, but he's got this idea. They employed 80,000 people in China and some more in America. Divides them all into little groups, self-managed groups. And he says, if you can some way find a new customer or improve the product, I'll give you a share of the extra profits or the savings that you make. And I had a dream. That uh, I was transported there in this stream to give a talk to them. And after the talk, which they applauded very nicely in English, as all these Chinese speak perfect English, of course, a lesson for us. Somebody said, How big should these groups be? And I said, Well, I tell you what, these groups are really f- little families. And families are very special things because They know each other very well. They may not always like each other very well. They may not even approve of them each. But they know each other very well. And as a result, they trust each other a lot because they know each other's failings, And they know what they can rely on you for. And I say, but I'm talking, of course, about the core family, the core piece of the shamrock, if you like. So, I mean, your parents and your brothers and your sisters. So, let me ask you, Write down, think of your own family, think of the families of your friends. How many people in that core, counting the parents and your brothers and your sisters, but not your cousins, because you don't know them well enough to trust them. I'm talking about the people that you are close enough to be able to smell them, so you know them very well. How many are in the core of your family? And let me know what the sum is. And they wrote it down, and they thought for a bit, and they entered them up, and I said, well, what are the numbers? And they said, and it came out at between eight and, 8 and and 12, and I said, there you are, that's the size of the groups you need to have. So in a funny, strange way, I invented a new new kind of theory. Family groups is a great organization, not more than 12 people, and uh, and I think it's quite a good rule of thumb. You must only trust people that you can be close enough to smell them. Is the other rule of thumb, and uh, you can you know how to you know what your family smell like, whether you like them or not. You know where you can trust them and where you can't. And uh, so, curiosity, imagination, and boredom, um, itchiness, itchy. Believe that you can be better. Believe that you can dream, and uh, let yourself imagine what it could be like if you had total freedom to do something. I mean, your life your life is a very precious thing. It's only going to happen once, unless you believe in reincarnation, but then you might be reincarnated as a frog, so that's not quite (laughs) much fun. So this is your own, probably own your life as a decent human being. Uh, What are you going to do with it? What are you going to leave behind? What's your legacy? Some of my Jewish friends tell me that Jews... Have two wills, one is their financial will, and the other is their value will. what they want people to remember about them when you die what What were the key values that your children will remember? The fact that you were very jovial, fat, full of dirty jokes, or will they remember that you were a brilliant rugby player, or will they remember that you were really excellent company, or they where were they what will they remember? And think if they if you're a really good father, what will your children remember about you? I have to leave you with Aristotle though. Aristotle was asked what the point of life was. And he said, Eudaimonia, E U D A I M O N I A. Looks like Eudaimonia, but it's eudaimonia. And when asked what it was, most people translated even then as happiness. But Aristotle was an activist. There he was a philosopher like me you know, and loved asking difficult questions. He was a he believed happiness was active happiness, what he called self-fulfillment. I translate that as saying, doing your best at what you're best at for the good of others. Doing your best at what you're best at for the good of others. Now philosophers, like me, are very irritating people. When they give you an answer, it turns out to be another question. So Aristotle's answer, as I translated, is a question, because only you know what you're best at. And only you know how to do your best at what you're best at. And only you know how that can help others in some way. But that is what your life is about. Happiness of an active sort. So I like to think that what I'm best at is writing books and giving Borgo talks in a concert hall. But if I do it well, I hope it gives people some idea of how to make the most of their lives, which will make them happy um, and fulfilled, and in a funny way. So in a funny way you get happiness by making other people happy. And so that becomes a sort of chain reaction to society. If every everybody wants to be happy, goes around making other people happy or doing what they believe to be their best people. Then suddenly you have a wonderful society which sort of glows in the dark with everybody helping everybody else to make the most of themselves with their white stones. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, the American um, code, you know, as a preface to the Constitution, that the aim of the American state, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it was written by Thomas Jefferson, who was a follower of Aristotle. And in the Library of Congress, his copy of Aristotle in ancient Greek is covered with his notes, and he underlines this passage. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, he didn't guarantee them happiness. He guaranteed the pursuit of happiness. By that, he meant the chance to fulfill the best of themselves. In other words, proper education, the chance to be what they are best of themselves. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not happiness. That's what he wants the American Constitution to deliver. And that's what I think every organization should aim at. Every organization, in its own purposes, should try to to try to full to make the most of its assets to make other people benefit. If it's only the customers, that's fine. Perhaps it should be the employees as well, the citizens. I mean, I think the ideal organization's makes allows its organizations life, liberty, and citizenship, and The ability, the pursuit of happiness, the ability to find the best of themselves and pass it on to others. So that's Aristotle. And he walks beside me in my head. Do your best at what you're best at for the good of others in some way. And the one makes them happy, and then they'll make other people happy, and the whole world will grow. So good luck, and thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Charles. Charles Handy, author of The Second Curve Thoughts on Reinventing Society. It's been an absolute pleasure joining you here in your house in London. And I look forward to talking about your next book and many more dreams that will be written in that book, I'm sure, to come. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much. I loved your questions. I surprised myself with some of my answers, but that's very good. That's very good. Surprise yourself, I'm sure you will, and uh, have a great life.